Section 23 of Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Tomko. Around the World on a Bicycle, Volume 2, by Thomas Stevens. Chapter 12, Taken Back to Persia, Part 2. The next day, soon after noon, we roll into Shahrud, where B discharges his foregun, and we engage mules to transport us over the Tash Pass, a breakneck bridle trail over the Elburz Range to the Asterabad Plain and the Caspian. A half-day search by Abdul results in the employment of an outfit comprising three Shavadars with three mules, a couple of donkeys, and riding horses for ourselves. A liberal use of the whip by R on the Shavadars' shoulders, awful threats, and sundry other persuasive arguments assist very materially in getting started at a decent hour on the morning following our arrival. The bicycle is taken apart and placed on top of the mule packs, where, in remembrance of its former fate under somewhat similar conditions, I keep it pretty strictly under surveillance. The Asterabad Trail is a steady ascent from the beginning, and before many miles are covered, scattering dwarf pines on the mountains indicate a change from the utter barrenness that characterizes their southern aspect. One lone tree of quite respectable dimensions, standing a mile or so off to our left, suggests a special point of demarcation between utter barrenness and where a new order of things begins. Our way leads up fearful rocky paths, where the horses have to be led, and at times assisted. Up, up, until our elevation is nearly 10,000 feet, and we are among a chaotic wilderness of precipitous rocks and scrub pines. A false step in some places, and our horses would roll down among the craggy rocks for hundreds of feet. It is a toilsome march, but we cross the Tash Pass, camp for the night in a little intermountain valley beside a stream at the foot of a pine-covered mountain. The change from the interior plains is already novel and refreshing. Grass abounds abundance, and the prospect is the greenest I have seen for nine months. We camp out in the open and are put to some discomfort by passing showers in the night. A march of a dozen miles from this valley over a tortuous mountain trail brings us into a country the existence of which one could never, by any stretch of the imagination, dream of in connection with Persia, as one sees it in its desert-like character south of the mountains. The transformation is from one extreme of vegetable nature to the other. We camp for lunch on velvety greensward beneath a grove of oak and cherry trees. Cuckoos are heard calling round about. Singing birds make melody, and among them we both recognize the cheery clickety-click of my raisin-loving Harati friends, the bulbuls. Flowers, too, are here at our feet in abundance, forget-me-nots and other familiar varieties. The view from our position is remarkably fine, reminding me forcibly of the Balkans south of Niche and of the Californian slopes of the Sierra Nevadas where they overlook the Sacramento Valley. The Asterabad Plain is spread out below us like a vast map. We can trace the windings and twistings of the various streams, the tracts of unreclaimed forest, and the cultivated fields. 
Asterabad and numerous villages dot the plain, and by taking ours binoculars we can make out, through the vaporous atmosphere, the shimmering surface of the Caspian Sea. It is one of the most remarkable views I ever saw, and the novelty and grandeur of it appeals the more forcibly to one's imagination, no doubt, because of its striking contrast to what the eyes have from long usage become accustomed to from dreary barren dashed and stony wastes to densely wooded mountains jungle-covered plains tall luxurious tiger-grass and beyond all this the shimmering background of the sea is a big change to find but little more than a day's march apart we are both captivated by the change and agree that the caspian slope is the only part of persia fit to look at the descent of the northern slope is even steeper than the other side but instead of rocks it is the rich soil of virgin forests open parks are occasionally crossed and on one of these we find a large camp of turcomans numbering not less than a hundred tents mountaineers are always picturesquely dressed and so too are nomads when, therefore, one finds mountaineer nomads, it seems superfluous almost to describe them as being arrayed chiefly in gewgaws and bright-colored clothes. Camped here amid the dark, luxurious vegetation, they and their tents make a charming picture, a scene of life and of contrast in colors which, if faithfully transferred to canvas, would be worth a king's ransom down paths of breakneck steepness and slipperiness our way descends into a dark region where vegetation runs riot in the shape of fine tall timber of a semi-tropical variety many of the trees present a fantastic appearance by reason of great quantities of hanging moss that in some instances fairly load down the weaker branches banks of beautiful ferns and mossy rocks join with the splendid trees in making our march through these northern foothills of the elbers mountains an experience long to be remembered a curious and interesting comparison that comes under our observation is that on the gray plains and rocky mountains of the interior the lizards are invariably of a dull and uninteresting color quite in keeping with their surroundings no sooner however do we find ourselves in a district where nature's deft hand has painted the whole canvas of the country in a bright green than the lizards which we see scuttling through the ferns and moss beds are also the greenest of all the green things these scaly little reptiles shine and glisten like supple shapes of emerald as one sees them gliding across the path this is but another link in the chain of evidence that seems to prove that animals derive much of their distinctive character and appearance from the nature of their surroundings in northern china are a species of small monkey with a quite heavy coat of fur they are understood to be the descendants of a comparatively hairless variety which found its way there from the warm jungles of the south the change from a warm climate to a cold one being responsible for the coat of fur in the same way, after noting the complete change that has come over the lizards, we conclude that if a colony of the gray species from the other side of the mountains were brought and turned loose among the green foothills here, their descendants, a few generations hence, would be found with coats as green as those of the natives. This conviction gathers force from the fact that no gray lizards whatever are encountered here. All the lizards we see are green. Emerging from the foothills, we find ourselves in a country the general appearance of which reminds me of a section of Missouri more than anything I have seen in Asia.
fields and pastures are fenced in with the same rude corduroy fences one sees in the missouri valley some well kept and others neglected the pastures are bluegrass and white clover bees are humming and buzzing from flower to flower and to make the similitude complete one hears the homely tinkle of cowbells here and there it is difficult to realize that all this is in persia and that one has not been transported in some miraculous manner back to the united states a little farther out from the base of the mountains however and we come upon wild figs pomegranates and other indigenous evidences of eastern soil and by and by our path almost becomes a tunnel burrowing through a wealth of tiger grass twenty feet high the field and little clearings which a few miles back were devoted to the cultivation of wheat and rye now become rice fields overflowed from irrigating ditches and in which bare-legged men and women are paddling about over their knees in mud and water early in the evening we reach the city of asterabad which we find totally different from the somber mud-built cities of the interior the wall surrounding it is topped with red tiles and the outer moat is choked with rank vegetation the houses are gabled and roofed with tiles or heavy thatch presenting an appearance very suggestive of the picturesque towns and villages about strasbourg the streets are narrow and ill-paved and neglect and decay everywhere abound the cemeteries are a chaotic mass of tumble-down tombstones and vagrant vegetation pools of water covered with green scum and heaps of filth everywhere fill the reeking atmosphere with malaria and breed big clouds of mosquitoes the people have a yellowish waxy complexion that tells its own story of the unhealthiness of the place without instituting special inquiry one can fairly sniff fever and ague in the streets much taste is displayed in architectural matters by the wealthier residents the walls surrounding the little compounds are sometimes adorned with house leeks or cactus tastefully set out along the top and in other cases with ornamental tiles the walls of the houses are decorated with paintings depicting in bright colors scenes of the chase birds animals and mythological subjects the charvadars lead the way to a big caravanserai in the heart of the city the place is found to be filled with a miscellaneous crowd of caravan people travellers merchants and dervishes the serai also appears to be a custom house and emporium for wool cotton and other products of the tributary country horses camels and merchandise crowd the central court and rising fifty feet above all this confusion and babble is a wooden tower known as a tular this is a dilapidated framework of poles that sways visibly in the wind the uses of which at first sight it is not easy to determine some of the natives motion for us to take possession of it however and we subsequently learn that the little eerie-like platform is used as a sleeping place by travellers of distinction the elevation and airiness are supposed to be a safeguard against the fever and a refuge from the terrible mosquitoes of which Esterabad is over full an hour after our arrival abdul goes out and discovers a persian gentleman named mahmoud turki agi who presents himself in the capacity of british agent here as we were in ignorance of the presence of any such official being in Asterabad, 
he comes as a pleasant surprise, and still more pleasant comes an invitation to accept his hospitality. From him we learn that the steamer we expect to take at Bundurguz, the port of Asterabad, eight farsakhs distant, will not sail until six days later. Mindful of the fever, from which he is still a sufferer to an uncomfortable extent, E looks a trifle glum at this announcement and after our traps are unpacked at mahmoud turkey agis he ferrets out a book of travels that i had often heard him referred to as an authority on sundry subjects turning over the leaves he finds a reference to bundur Guz, and reads out the story of a certain gimlet-tailed fly that makes life a burden to the unwary traveller who elects to linger there on the caspian shore between this gimlet-tailed pest, however, and the mosquitoes of Asterabad, we decide that there can be very little to choose, and so make up our minds to accept our host's hospitality for a day, and then push on. During the day we call on the Russian consul to get our passports vised. As between English and Russian prestige, the latter are decidedly to the fore in Asterabad the bear has his big paw firmly planted on this fruitful province it is more russian than persian now before long it will be russian altogether nothing is plainer to us than this as we reach the russian consulate and are introduced by mahmoud turkey agi to the consul he is no native agent on the contrary he is one of the biggest personages i have seen anywhere he is the sort of man that the russian government invariably picks out for its representation at such important points in asia and asterabad a six-footer of magnificent physique with a smooth and polished address all smiles and politeness the russian consul wears a leonine moustache that could easily be tied in a knot at the back of his head Although he is the only European resident of Asterabad, save a few Cossack attendants, he wears fashionable Persian clothes, a wealth of watch-chain, rings, and flash jewelry, patent leather shoes, and all the accompaniments of an ostentatious show of wealth and personal magnificence. His rooms are equally gorgeous, and contain large colored portraits of the Tsar and Tsarina the intent and purpose of all this display is to fill the minds of the natives and particularly the native officials with an overwhelming sense of russian grandeur and power no persian can enter the presence of this russian consul in his rooms without experiencing a certain measure of awe and admiration they regard with covetous eyes the rich and comfortable appointments of the rooms and the big gold watch chains and rings on the consul's person they too would like to be in the russian service if its rewards are on such a magnificent scale of patriotism to the shah they know nothing self-interest is the only master they willingly serve no one knows this better than the russian consul and in the case of influential officials and other useful persons he sees to it that gold watches and such like tokens of the tsar's esteem are not lacking the result is that asterabad both city and province is even now more russian than persian and when the proper time arrives will drop into the bear's capacious maw like a ripe plum at daybreak on the morning of departure the charvadars wake us up by pounding on the outer gate and shouting haji to abdul abdul lets them in and the next hour passes in violent and wordy disputation among them as they load up their horses 
All three have purchased new Asterabad hats, big black busbies much prized by Persians from beyond the mountains. The acquisition of these imposing headdresses has had the effect of increasing their self-esteem wonderfully. They regard each other with considerable hauteur and quarrel almost continually for the first few miles. E puts up with their angry shouting and quarreling for a while, and then chases them around a little with a long hunting whip he carries. This brings them to their senses again, and secures a degree of peace, but the inflating effect of the new hats crops out at intervals all day. Our road from Asterabad leads through jungle nearly the whole distance to Bundurguz. In the woods are clearings consisting of rice fields, orchards, and villages. The villages are picturesque clusters of wattle houses with peaked thatch roofs that descend to within a few feet of the ground. Groves of English walnut trees abound, and plenty of these trees are also scattered through the jungle. During the day, we encounter a gang of professional native hunters hunting wild boars, of which these woods contain plenty, as well as tigers and panthers. They are a wild-looking crowd, with long hair and sleeves rolled up to their elbows. Big knives are bristling in their cameraboons, besides which they are armed with spears and flintlock muskets. They make a great deal of noise, shouting and hallooing one to another. One can tell when they are on a hot trail by the amount of noise they make, just as you can with a pack of hounds. We reach our destination by the middle of the afternoon, and find the place a wretched village, right on the shore of the Caspian. We repair to the caravanserai, but find the rooms so evil-smelling that we decide upon camping out and risking the fever rather than court acquaintance with possible cholera, providing no better place can be found elsewhere. This serai is a curious place anyway. All sorts of people, some of them so peculiarly dressed that none of our party are able to make out their character or nationality. A dervish is exhorting a crowd of interested listeners at one end of the courtyard, and a strolling band of lutis are entertaining an audience at the other end. There are six of these lutis. While two are performing, four are circulating among the crowd, collecting money. In any other country but Persia, five would have been playing, and one passing the hat. E and Abdul go ahead to try and secure better quarters, and shortly the latter returns and announces that they have been successful. So I and the Sharvadars, with the horses, follow him through a crooked street of thatched houses, at the end of which we find R seated beneath the veranda of a rude hotel kept by an Armenian Jew. As we approach, I observe that my companion looks happier than I have seen him look for days. He is pretty thoroughly disgusted with Persia and everything in it, and this, together with his fever, has kept him in anything but an amiable frame of mind. But now his face is actually illumined with a smile. On the little table before him stand a half-dozen black bottles, imperial pints, bearing labels inscribed with outlandish Russian words. This is civilization, my boy. Civilization reached at last, says E, as he sees me coming. What, this wretched tumble-down hole? I exclaim, waving my hand at the village. No, not that, replies E. This, this is civilization. And he holds up to the light a glass of amber Russian beer. Apart from Russians, we are the first European travelers that have touched at Bundurguz since McGregor was here in 1875. 
We keep a loose eye out for the gimlet-tailed flies, but are not harassed by them half so much as by fleas and the omnipresent mosquito. These two latter insects have dwindled somewhat from the majestic proportions described by McGregor. They are large enough and enterprising enough as it is, but McGregor found one species the size of cats and the other as large as camels. Bundurguz is simply a landing and shipping point for Asterabad and adjacent territory. A good deal of Russian bar iron, petroleum, iron kettles, etc., are piled up under rude sheds, and wool from the interior is being baled by Persian Jews, naked to the waist by means of hand presses. Cotton and wool are the chief exports. Of course, the whole of the trade is in the hands of the Russians, who have driven the Persians quite off the sea. The Caspian is now nothing more nor less than a Russian salt-water lake. The harbor of Bundurguz is so shallow that one may ride horseback into the sea for nearly a mile. The steamers have to load and unload at a floating dock a mile and a half from shore. Very pleasant, in spite of the wretched hole we are in, is to find oneself on the seashore, to see the smoke of a steamer and the little smacks riding at anchor. The day after our arrival, a man comes round and tells Abdul that he has three fine young Mazandaran tigers he would like to sell the sahibs. We send Abdul to investigate, and he returns with the report that a party of Asterabad tiger hunters have killed a female tiger and brought in three cubs. The man comes back with him and impresses upon us the assertion that they are Kylie Koob Bobs, very splendid tigers, and would be dirt cheap at three hundred karans apiece, the price he pretends to want for them. From this we know that the tigers could be bought very cheap, and since Mazandaran tigers are very rare in European menageries, we determine to go and look at them anyway. They are found to be the merest kittens, not yet old enough to see. They are savage little brutes, and spend their whole time in dashing recklessly against the bars of the coop in which they are confined. They refuse to eat or drink, and although the Persians declare that they would soon learn to feed, we conclude that they would be altogether too much trouble, even if it were possible to keep them from dying of starvation. On the evening of June 3rd, we put off, together with a number of native passengers, in a lighter, for the vessel which is loaded up with bales of cotton at the floating dock. Most of the night is spent in sitting on deck and watching the Persian roustabouts carry the cargo aboard, for the shouting, the inevitable noisy squabbling, and the thud of bales dumped into the hold render sleep out of the question. The steamer starts at sunrise, and the captain comes round to pay his respects. He is more of a German than a Russian, and seems pleased to welcome aboard his ship the first English or American passengers he has had for years. He makes himself agreeable, and takes a good deal of interest in explaining anything about the burning of petroleum residue on the Caspian steamers instead of coal. He takes us down below and shows us the furnaces, and explains the modus operandi. We are delighted at the evident superiority of this fuel over coal, and the economy and ease of supplying the furnaces. Seven kopecks, the forty pounds, the captain says, is the cost of the fuel, and two and a half rubles the expense of running the vessel at full speed an hour. There is not an ounce of coal aboard. The boiler house is as clean and neat as a parlor, and no cinders fall upon the deck or awnings. 
in place of huge coal bunkers taking up half the vessel's carrying space compact tanks above the furnaces hold all the liquid fuel pipes convey it automatically much or little as easily as regulating a water tap to the fire boxes jets of steam scatter it broadcast throughout the box in the form of spray and ensures its spontaneous combustion into flame a peep in these furnaces displays a mass of flame filling an iron box in which no fuel is to be seen a slight twist of a brass cock increases or diminishes this flame at once a couple of men in clean linen uniforms manage the whole business we both concluded that it was far superior to coal many windings and tackings are necessary to get outside ashdurada bay sometimes we are steaming bow on for bundurguz apparently returning to port at other times we are going due south when our destination is nearly north this the captain explains is due to the intricacy of the channel which is little more than a deeper stream so to speak meandering crookedly through the shallows and sandbars of the bay buoys and sirens mark the steamer's course to the russian naval station of ashdurada here we cross a bar so shallow that no vessel of more than twelve feet draft can enter or leave the bay our own ship is a light draft steamer of five hundred tons burden a little steam launch puts out from ashdurada bringing the males and several naval officers bound for krasnovdosk and baku the scenery of the mazanderan coast is magnificent the bold mountains seem to slope quite down to the shore and from summit to surf waves they present one dark green mass of forest the menu of these caspian steamers is very good based on the french school of cookery rather than english no early breakfast is provided however breakfast at eleven and dinner at six are the only refreshments provided by the ship's regular service anything else has to be paid for as extras at eleven o'clock we descend to the dining saloon where we find the table spread with caviar cheese little raw salt fishes pickles vodka and the unapproachable bread of russia the captain and passengers are congregated about this table some sitting others standing and all reaching here and there everybody helping himself and eating with his fingers now and then each one tosses off a little tumbler of vodka we proceed to the table and do our best to imitate the russians in their apparent determination to clean off the table the edibles before us comprise the elements of a first-class cold luncheon and we sit down prepared to do it ample justice by and by the russians leave this table one by one and betake themselves to another on the opposite side of the saloon as they sit down waiters come in bearing smoking hot roasts and vegetables wine and dessert a gleam of intelligence dawns upon my companion as he realizes that we are making a mistake and pausing in the act of transferring bread and caviar to his mouth he says to me impressively this is only sukuski you know on this table why of course didn't you know that your ignorance surprises me i thought you knew and then we follow the example of everybody else and pass over to the other side the sukuski is taken before the regular meal in russia the tidbits and the vodka are partaken of to prepare and stimulate the appetite for the regular meal not yet however are we fully initiated into the mysteries of the caspian steamer's service 
Wine is flowing freely, and as we seat ourselves, the captain passes down his bottle. Presently, I hold my glass to be refilled by a spectacled naval officer sitting opposite. With a polite bow, he fills it to the brim. The next moment, I happen to catch the captain's eye. It contains a meaning twinkle of amusement. Heavens! This is not a French steamer, even if the cookery is somewhat Frenchy. Neither is it a table d'hote, with claret flowing ad libitum. The ridiculous mistake has been made of taking the captain's polite hospitality and the liberal display of bottles for the free wine of the French table d'hote. The officer with the eyeglasses lands at Chislicar in the afternoon, for which I am not sorry. At Chislicar we are met by a lighter with several Turcoman passengers. The sea is pretty rough, and the united efforts of several boatmen are required to hoist aboard each long-gowned Turcoman, each woman and child. They are Turcoman traders going to Baku and Tiflis with bales of the famous Kibitka hangings and carpets. Chislikar is a port whence a few years ago the Russian expedition set out on their campaign against the Tek Turcomans. Three hundred miles inland is the famous fortress of Gioki Tep, where disaster overtook the Russians, and where, in a subsequent campaign, occurred that massacre of women and children which caused the Western world to wonder anew at the barbarism of the Russian soldiery. Still steaming north, our little craft plows her way toward Krasnovotsk, an important military station on the eastern coast. At night, the surface of the sea becomes smooth and glassy. The sun sets, rotund and red, in a haze suggestive of Indian summer in the west. The cabins are small and stuffy, so I sleep up on the hurricane deck, wrapping a Persian sheepskin overcoat about me. An awning covers this deck completely, but this does not prevent everything beneath getting drenched with dew. Never did I see such a fall of dew. It streams off the big awning like a shower of rain, and soaks through it and drips, drips onto my recumbent form and everything on the hurricane deck. Early in the morning we moor our ship to the dock at Krasnovotsk, and load and unload merchandise till noon. Here is where railway material for the Transcaspian Railway to Merv is landed, the terminus being at Mikhailovich nearby. We go ashore for a couple of hours and look about. The inmates of a military convalescent hospital are passing from the doctor's office to their barracks. They are wearing long dressing gowns of grey stuff, with hoods that make them look wonderfully like a lot of monks arrayed in cowls. A company of infantry are target-practicing at the foot of Rocky Buttes, just outside the town. Not a tree nor a green thing is visible in the place, nor on all the hills around. Nothing but the blue waters of the Caspian and the dull prospect of rude rock buildings and grey hills. Except for the sea and the raggedness and abject servility of the poor class of people, one might imagine Krasnovotsk some far western fort. Scarcely a female is seen on the streets. Soldiers are everywhere, and in the commercial quarter every other place is a vodka shop. We visit one of these and find men in red shirts and cowhide boots playing billiards and drinking, others drinking and playing cards. Rough and sturdy men they look, frontiersmen, but there is no spirit, no independence in their expression. They look like curs that have been chastised and bullied until the spirit is completely broken.
This peculiar humbled and resigned expression is observable on the faces of the common people from one end of Russia to the other. It is quite extraordinary for a common Russian to look one in the eye. Nor is this at all deceptive. A social superior might step up and strike one of these men brutally in the face without the slightest provocation, and, though the victim of the outrage might be strong as an ox, no remonstrance whatever would be made. It is difficult for us to comprehend how human beings can possibly become so abjectly servile and spiritless as the lower-class Russian. But the terrors of the Naut and Siberia are ever-present before them. Cheap chromolithographs of Gregorian saints hang on the walls of the saloon, and with them are mingled fancy pictures of Tiflis and Baku, Café Chantant Bells. Long rows of vodka bottles are the chief stock in trade of the place, but pivo, beer, can be obtained from the cellar. Quite a number of army officers, with their wives, come aboard at Krasnovotsk. They seem good fellows, nearly all, and inclined to cultivate our acquaintance. Individually, the better-class Russian and the Englishman have many attributes in common that make them like each other. Except for imperial matters, Russian and English officers would be the best of friends, I think. The ladies all smoke cigarettes incessantly. There is not a handsome woman aboard, and they show the lingering traces of Russian barbarism by wearing beads and gewgaws. The most interesting of our passengers is a Persian dealer in precious stones. He is a well-educated individual, quite a linguist, and a polished gentleman withal. He is taking diamonds and turquoises that he has collected in Persia to Vienna and Paris. Another night of drenching dew, and by six o'clock next morning we are drawing near to the great petroleum port of Baku. From Krasnovotsk we have crossed the Caspian from east to west right on the line of latitude 40 degrees. End of section 23. Recording by William Tomko.